in chapter 1. James chapter 1. Uh, this evening we are concluding our series of sermons focused on putting Romans 8.13 into practice. As I mentioned this morning, next Sunday we will continue on in our verse-by-verse study of chapter 8. But for the last time, let me remind you what Romans 8.13 says. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so we've spent time here because we've seen that the stakes were high. Life, death, heaven, hell. That real Christians kill sin and they kill sin by the Spirit. And that means through prayer, through faith, through the Word. And so my desire in these sermons has been to see what does Romans 8.13 look like in real life. We've talked about pride and we've talked about avarice. We've talked about lust and gluttony. We've talked about sloth and envy. Uh, These sins that we all face to one degree or another. These temptations we struggle with. And tonight we conclude our series by looking at the sin of anger. What we want to do is take the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, the Word of God, the chief means of grace, and we want to learn from it how to annihilate the sin of anger. And so we're going to follow our typical outline, and we're going to begin with anger defined. And just hold your place. We'll come to our verse in just a moment. But I want to begin by presenting to you two lists. Two lists. And I want you to see... If you can figure out what it is that I'm listing off. What is this a list of? Here's the first list. When you put something down for a second, and the next thing you know, it's disappeared. When you can't sleep, though you know you have to get up early the next day. Waiting in line. Waiting at the stoplight. Burning your tongue on a hot cup of coffee. Getting sick the day before your big trip. Realizing you said the wrong thing, but you've already hit send. Being hungry, but knowing you've already had too much to eat. Being assigned more than you can handle. Money issues. Allergies. What do you think that's a list of? Well, it's supposed to be a list of things that can frustrate us, annoy us, and even sometimes make us angry. But now listen to the second list and see if you can figure out what this is a list of. When politicians lie, when false teachers spread a false gospel, when people you love are doing things that are wicked, When someone uses the Lord's name in vain. When you see an orphan neglected and uncared for. When you learn that a judge was paid off to let the bad guy go free. Rape. Racism. Spousal abuse. Abortion. Child abuse. What do you think about that list? It's a list of things that ought to make us angry. 
The first list ought not to make us angry. But those things rile our flesh. They discontent us. They poke at our selfishness. It's not really right for us to be angry at the first list. But the second list is different. To not be angry at something on the second list would be sin. I began this way to make a point. Anger in and of itself is not wicked. In fact, anger is an attribute of God. Yes, God is described in the Bible as being merciful and kind and long-suffering. But God is also described as being good and holy. And this means having a fierce anger against all that is truly wicked. Anything that would diminish God's glory or harm His people, He is angry at. Deuteronomy 29, 27-28 Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Or 2 Chronicles 29, verse 10. Now it is my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that His fierce anger may turn away from us. The truth is the Bible is full of verses like that. Um, The most common Hebrew word for anger literally means nostril because the Hebrews equated anger with the flaring of the nostrils uh, like you might would see on an angry bull. Uh, You and I know that anger is an attribute of God because that's why we need Christ. Uh, We know from the gospel, from the most important message in the world, that our God is a holy God and therefore He is angry because of our sins. That this place called hell exists because of his anger hell is a place where God's anger is vented both fairly and in a measured way and yet hell is a place where his anger is expressed in ferocity um, upon people for their sins some of the most terrifying passages in all of the Bible are about God's wrath that will be poured out on the last day For one example, Isaiah 63, verse 3 and 6. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the people no one was with me. I trod them in my wrath. Their lifeblood is splattered on my garments. It stained all my apparel. I trampled them down in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. It is good and right. For God to be angry about sin. When the Bible says that God is love, it implies He must also be angry against sin, since sin brings death to those that God loves. Now, you and I were created in God's image. And one aspect of being created in God's image is that we have been given the capacity for anger, and it's a gift. Listen to Richard Baxter, and then I'll explain in more modern words. But this is how he put it. He said, Anger is the rising up of the heart in passionate discontent against an apprehended evil, 
which would cross or hinder us of some desired good. Anger is given to us by God for good, to stir us up to a vigorous resistance of those things which within us or without us do oppose His glory or our salvation or our own or our neighbor's real good. So Richard Baxter defines anger for us. He says, it's a passion that rises in the heart. It's a a discontented passion. It's an unsettled passion, a, a troubled emotion. And this passion is against something that we see as a hindrance to us or a threat to us or a hindrance to others, a threat to others. And the reason God gave us this capacity for anger is because there are times when we ought to have this passionate discontent. There are times when we need to be stirred up to action against something that really does threaten us. Friends, you are to hate the devil. You are to hate the devil. You are to hate injustice in every form. You are to hate the flesh. You are to hate worldliness. These things will bring true harm to you and they will bring true harm to others. If you love other people, you will hate those things that would do them harm. Without anger, we would stand complacent and content in the face of deadly enemies. Without anger, we would be sitting tranquil in our seats when we ought to be up and fighting. Without anger, sin would pummel us and destroy us. So anger in and of itself is good when it is used rightly. Anger is good when it is both felt in appropriate measure and directed against a truly evil thing. But here is what the fall has done to us. Now we often don't feel anger in appropriate measure. Too often we feel very little anger towards our own sins and we feel more anger than we should towards the sins of others. We let little things outside of us make make us far more angry than we should and we fail to feel any wrath towards those sins inside of us that we ought to be putting to death. And then at the same time, we often get angry at all the wrong things. We get angry at circumstances, waiting at the stoplight as though God didn't ordain even that for our good. But we don't get angry as we ought when we see immorality in the world. We learn of some great injustice. We learn of the needless suffering of others and our hearts remain numb and we don't really care. But let the quarterback of our favorite football team throw an interception and suddenly we're punching a hole in the wall. You see, our anger is out of whack We get angry about the wrong things. Therefore, God gives us verses like the one I asked you to turn to in James chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 19. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of of God. The righteousness of God here refers to godly living, godly attitudes, godly behavior. 
The righteousness of God refers to good deeds, a heart of love, a mind that's invested in the kingdom, a a spirit of meekness and humility. And James is telling us that the anger of man, especially ungodly anger, it does not lead us in this direction. Wicked anger takes us in the opposite direction of righteousness. Uh, There was a Christian teacher named John of Damascus. He lived in the second half of the 600s, first half of the 700s. He said that we can distinguish anger into three different forms. Anger, wrath, and hatred. He argued that simple anger has beginning and motion, but it soon ceases. This is an anger that stirs up real quickly, but it's also gone very quickly. Uh, One man said that this is like fire in stubble. It burns out just as quickly as it begins. This is the kind of anger we might feel when we shut our finger in the door. It's there for a moment, but then we tend to get over it very quickly. But then there is wrath. Wrath, he said, is when anger takes root in your memory. You hold on to it. You don't let go of it. It's like fire in iron or in steel. It may eventually cool, but it takes a good while. And this is what we experience when we keep holding on to something, even bringing it up into our minds again and again and again. Maybe something that somebody did to us weeks, months, or even years before. Maybe we can't let go. We hold on to this deep-seated anger. He said, that's wrath. And then there's hatred. Hatred is the kind of anger that does not cease until it has gotten revenge. Hatred may be hidden for a long time. Others may not even know that it is there. Then suddenly... Hatred acts out to get its revenge. This is the kind of anger we see in Cain. He likely had held a grudge against his brother for some time, but it finally acted out in murder. It's the kind of anger we see in the brothers of Joseph. Their anger wouldn't go away until they had finally acted upon it in violence against their own brother. Another example of hatred I recently read about was this. There was a friar named Augustine of Antwerp. This is not St. Augustine. A man named Augustine of Antwerp, a friar. And he once stood in his pulpit in the days of the Reformation. And he told his people, he said, I wish that Martin Luther was present here today so that I could bite out his throat with my teeth. Okay, that's anger. It seeks violence. It seeks revenge. It seeks to do harm. And it simmers until it gets what it wants. Folks, that kind of anger, whether it's short-term anger, whether it's wrath, whether it's hatred, it does not produce the righteousness of God. It will only serve as a hindrance to your good and the good of others, the glory of God. Well, that's anger defined. Now let's look at anger described. Why is unrighteous anger such a vile sin? Four reasons. This is coming from all over the Bible. I'll quote a number of scriptures. Number one, unrighteous anger is deeply connected to foolishness. Do you know that? The Bible lots of times draws the connection between unrighteous anger and being a fool. The Proverbs do this especially. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine: Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. 
but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Or Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. Do you have good sense? Are you a sensible person? I've always considered my dad to be a very wise man and as I was putting this message together I started thinking this is probably a good part of the reason why my dad has always been one of the most even-tempered people I've ever met only once or twice in my entire life have I ever seen him lose his cool you see when we allow ourselves to be quickly angered we make ourselves fools we lose control of ourselves and We often bring dishonor on the name of Christ that we wear, on the gospel we profess, on the Savior that we follow, on the church we belong to, and on all who are connected to us. But number two, anger at another person is murder in the heart. Anger is a vile sin because when we are unrighteously angry at another person, we are committing murder in the heart. Jesus was very clear about this. When we as human beings hate another human being, we are standing in judgment upon them. And we are wishing that they were dead. That is, we are wishing that they were out of our way. We are wishing that they were gone. Matthew 5, 21, 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Since this is true, you see how anger is an enemy of love. Love seeks the welfare of the other person. Love seeks to benefit and strengthen and encourage the other person. Anger seeks to murder the other person. Anger would rather see the person gone. Unrighteous anger and love are polar opposites. Third, and I bet you're expecting this, anger leads to many other sins. Just like every one we've talked about, anger leads to many other sins. Indeed, the fruit of anger is more sin. Psalm 37, verse 8, Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Or Proverbs 29:22, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Surely you have seen this in your own life. When are you more prone to foolish, sinful acts? Is it not when we're angry? Is it not when we're frustrated? A discontented heart is prone towards sin. Anger will allow you to think things you normally wouldn't think. Anger opens the door where you say things that you normally wouldn't say. You do things you normally wouldn't do. And then what's worse, anger is contagious. It really does stir up more strife. When one person is angry, it often does not take much for many other people to join in the anger. I'll give you one memorable example of this. In the spring of 1894, the Baltimore Orioles came to Boston to play a routine baseball game. It turned out to be a day that neither team would ever forget. Uh, The Orioles' John McGraw got into a fight with the third baseman 
for Boston. And within minutes, all of the players from both teams had joined in the brawl out on the field. We've seen that kind of thing before, haven't we, on the TV? But then things spread even further. Soon, the people in the grandstand were fighting each other too. The people began to attack one another. It became fan versus fan. And then, though we don't know how it happened, who did it, what got it started, someone set fire to the stands. And in the fight, the entire ballpark caught on fire and burnt to the ground. The fire spread and took a hold of 107 other Boston buildings that were destroyed. This was a graphic picture of the contagious nature of anger and also the kind of destruction it can leave in its place. Uh, One more point on this. This morning I referenced an article talking about Facebook and how the chief emotion aroused by Facebook and people is the emotion of envy. There was another study, however, that showed that the most contagious emotion on the internet is anger. Uh, The study looked at what gets reposted, which tweets get retweeted the most, which uh, Facebook posts gets the most likes and reshares and reposts, and it turned out that it was the angrier posts, those that tended to be critical, those that tended to have a fiery passion against others behind them that were shared and passed on the most. You want to be a curse in other people's lives? Be a person of unrighteous anger because it's contagious. You will lead other people into dark paths. But then a fourth and final reason that anger is so vile is that it cuts us off from true, reasonable, enjoyable fellowship. Anger cuts us off from true fellowship. Anger puts us in a state so that we cannot know the kind of fellowship we ought to with others. Anger will separate you from your spouse. Anger can separate parents and children. Anger can separate siblings from one another, often for years or even lifetimes. Coworkers and friends suddenly can't enjoy being around one another anymore. These relationships are broken as long as anger is at play. All of the good that could have come from those relationships, all of the happy fellowship that could have been enjoyed is lost. All that could have been accomplished in a family, a business, a church, a neighborhood, all of it is lost when people cannot work together in joy and with sweetness. Indeed, anger even puts our hearts at a state where our very fellowship with God is hindered. It is hard to enjoy being with God when you know that you are being unrighteously angry. Angry people don't want to pray. Have you ever noticed that about yourself? Angry people tend not to want to open their Bibles. They don't want to sing the hymns. They don't want to go to Bible study. Anger causes our own hearts to become hardened towards God, to resent Him, to want to stay away from Him because He is light. And we know that if His light shines on our unrighteous anger, we will have reason to be embarrassed and ashamed. His light exposes our darkness. We will see our own foolishness. We will see our own wickedness. 
So you see, anger hates the light. It, it draws in on itself. It doesn't want to be near God. It doesn't want to be near truth. And this is why in the church, it often takes brothers and sisters in Christ being honest and bold to help us to see and deal with unrighteous anger as we ought. Mount Hermon, see the vast fields that are filled with broken relationships. See the wounded hearts. See the shed tears. See the aching and the sadness and the depression and the despair. See the divorces and the drug abuse and the alcoholism and the suicides. Anger wreaks havoc. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. No, just the opposite. It produces wickedness. How does Christ make all the difference? Number one, Christ set the example. Jesus was our example of being righteously angry when he ought to be righteously angry. When Jesus saw his father's house being abused, he was righteously angry. When he saw the effects of death on people's lives, we're told that he became angry at what he saw. But when Jesus himself was being abused, when Jesus himself was mocked, spat upon, crucified, he looked upon his murderers with love and compassion and forgiveness. Read the Gospels and see the example of Christ. Second, Christ on the cross took the punishment that our sins deserve, which means that every moment that we've ever been unrighteously angry, those sins have been placed on Christ at the cross if we believe. There is no hell to pay for us if we are Christians because Christ has already paid that price. If you're here tonight and you struggle with unrighteous anger, and we all do to some degree, don't let that be something that paralyzes you, that depresses you, that keeps you from, from following hard after Christ. No, you are a forgiven person. All of your sins, past, present, and future, they are forgiven in Christ. And then third, Christ has promised us a day when we will be perfectly holy. You will not battle unrighteous anger forever. There will be a day when you will walk the new heavens and the new earth and there will be perfect peace in every relationship. Number four, Christ by his Holy Spirit is working in us even now to rid us of unrighteous anger. The Spirit is at work within us to teach us to discern when ought we to be angry. And when ought we not to be angry? The Spirit is at work within us to give us a proper proportion in our anger, in our anger, so that we know to what extent we ought to be angry and when we've gone too far. The Spirit is at work within us to rid us of all unrighteous anger, and we ought to join with the Spirit in that fight. Number five, Christ by His Spirit through His Word causes us to know His love for us. We do not fight this sin out of a desperate attempt to make things right with God. No, we fight unrighteous anger the way we fight every sin with the calm assurance that I am my beloved and my beloved is mine as we just sang a while ago. 
that Christ is ours and we are his and that even as filthy and rotten and unrighteously angry as I can be for some reason he has still put his love on me and he still cares for me and so I'm not fighting the sin trying to make Jesus like me no he is already loving me more than I can ever know and so in the joy of that in the joy of the Lord I find my strength to fight against this sin the point of this as in every message is to say if you're here and you're an unbeliever come to Christ this is the key to finding freedom from every sin every sin makes us guilty before a holy God but Christ wipes away our guilt He takes it upon himself. He brings forgiveness. And every sin enslaves us if we're not Christians. But when we come to trust in Jesus, we are set free from the power of sin so that we really can resist it. We really can fight against it. We really can grow in holiness, in meekness, in humility, and in joy. And so if you're here and you're an unbeliever, I would ask you to feel the weight of your own sin feel the weight of how many times you've been unrighteously angry and know that this has been um, a, a sin against God and it's been a curse in the lives of others but by trusting in Jesus Christ and following him you will find salvation okay our fourth and final heading Romans eight 13. let's put it into practice even with this sin we know we're going to be praying about it we know we have to believe the promises of Christ about ourselves and that that's where we're going to get the strength to fight what about the word the sword of the spirit what does the Bible teach us about how to join with the spirit in killing unrighteous anger I'm going to mention just a few of the Bible's methods it actually has much to say on this subject more than I could put into this one message so here's just a few number one be alert to the first risings of anger in your heart be alert to the first risings of anger in your heart if you live life unaware if you live life failing to keep a watch on yourself anger will regularly take a hold of you you must watch over yourself and be quick to notice as soon as you are a bit frustrated annoyed a bit angry And always test to see if your anger is righteous or not. Is it appropriate, both in its object, what you're angry against, and in its intensity? Be careful never to stay angry too long. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the devil get a foothold. A fire, if you see it when it first begins, well, you can control it. You can can put it out. But if you don't notice and you allow the fire to grow and grow, it will eventually burn down a forest or a neighborhood or even kill you. So be alert. It's a lot easier to stamp out unrighteous anger at its beginnings than it is later. Second, avoid angry people. Avoid angry people. Proverbs twenty two twenty four: Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man you see you will become like the company you keep 
we talked in Sunday school before about the uh, the Amish documentary, right? The fellow went and he was watching the Amish children playing and he noticed that they never seemed to yell. They never seemed to raise their voice. And he asked one of the Amish adults, you know, why are the children never yelling? And the Amish adult said, well, have you ever seen an Amish adult yell? His point was that's because Amish people have this culture where you don't raise your voice, you don't yell. The children have learned that. Well, in the same way, we become like the company we keep. We become like the people we're around. And so if we are best friends with people who are easily angered, who act out in their anger, who don't practice self-control, we shouldn't be surprised if we begin to see that coming out in our own lives. Look for those people who are even-tempered. Look for those people who know how to handle frustrating situations in the joy of the Lord. They're rare. (laughs) Find them and be around them a lot. Uh, Look for those in our church who are gifted with a mild and meek spirit. Learn from them. Watch them. Study them. Their spiritual gifts are given for the benefit of us all. Anger is contagious, but so is contentment, especially among Christians who can point one another to Christ's love. Number three. Do not dwell on the wrongs done to you or on frustrating or annoying things, but dwell on those things that are heavenly. On what does your mind dwell? Where do you allow your mind to sit still and rest and meditate for a while? On what subjects? It is really hard to be angry when your mind is dwelling on the promises of God. It is hard to be angry when you are constantly remembering that everything, absolutely everything, is happening for your good. It is hard to be angry when you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3 verse 2 says, set your minds, literally set, focus it in, target it in. Here's where you should put your mind for meditation and dwelling Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This doesn't mean that you don't live in the real world. You do, and therefore you're going to have to think about real world things. But it does mean that you're going to live in this real world, viewing the real world through the very real lens of what God has told you. That you ought to seek to live with a biblical worldview and that a true biblical worldview from a Christian's perspective should allow you to look at this world with a real sense of joy and peace and contentment. Fourth, finally, dwell on the tender, gentle, patient nature of your Savior. Dwell on the tender, patient, gentle nature of your Savior. Friends, think of how just and right it would be for Christ to be angry towards you. Think of the wrath that we deserve for our sins and then see how Christ's kindness overflows towards us. See how patient Jesus is with us in our weaknesses. See how Jesus never forsakes us, though we follow him so poorly. We follow him so slowly. I picture him as a shepherd, and and he takes one step, and already the sheep are going the wrong way, and he has to go all the way back and pick them up and come another step, and, and it's like we never make any progress. You would think he would be frustrated with us. You'd think he'd take his rod and his staff and 
beat us with it. Move on, sheep. But he doesn't. He's patient. He's gentle. He's tender. See how your Savior could break you, but instead he treats you as a tender reed, and he works to heal your soul and to make you holy. See how Jesus carefully measures every trial and temptation so that there is never one that comes your way that is beyond your ability to resist. See how Jesus protects you like a father, how he nurtures you like a mother, how he is long-suffering towards you. Jesus is your bridegroom, the lover of your soul. He is never discontent with you. Jesus is never frustrated or annoyed Jesus is at perfect peace even as he endures your shortfalls and your sins and he loves you so live in that love dwell in the peace of Christ view every frustration and annoyance view every sin that is ever done to you as part of God's plan to do you good Folks, this is really the secret. This is the the chief message of the Bible for combating every sin. Trust Christ and live in his love and in the strength of that love, obey. This is how we defeat sin. We trust, we believe. Our roots go deep in the love of Christ for us. We can't believe it, but we must believe it. It's true. And in light of that, we love Jesus back and we act on that love in obedience trust and obey. That's how we kill sin. Let's pray.